when you're feeling kinda shorty Not noticing you're smelly You can put on some tunes and grab a few beers There's a place we can go It's not far from here Have a sit, nice chat But where's the beer? It's Dorks on Corks Dorks on Corks When you're not feeling the pops on hops It's Dorks on Corks Now we need a sponsorship But I'll take the feeling of love How about we turn the beer to wine Dogs on corks Dogs on corks You're not feeling the pops on hops It's dogs on corks It's kinda like pops on hops, it's dorks on corks. You're listening to the Dorks on Corks podcast, where we do a little whining, drink a little vine, and I get to hang with my partner in crime. I'm Barry Hummel. And I'm Abigail Hummel, and welcome to episode two of Dorks on Corks, where today we will be reviewing the Masked Marauders by the Masked Marauders and drinking wine from Island Grove Wine Company in Hawthorne, Florida. Dad, why don't you tell us a little bit about why you chose this winery? Well, this is a complicated story, but I'll be brief. So we had planned to go to a winery up near Claremont, Florida together and do it live and have a sommelier walk us through a tasting. And about four days before we were supposed to go, one of the two of us... who will remain nameless, had a very (laughs) untimely, untimely and extended exposure to COVID. Involving preparation of a meal. (laughs) And I can't afford to be sick because I have a big race coming up. So rather than run the risk of people getting sick before travel and also putting people at risk at the winery and things like that, we decided to do this on Zoom because we got a little bit of a time crunch. So we pulled the old game of let's go to our separate total wines, walk the aisles, try to figure out what we both had in stock that we could do with a focus on Florida because we love our Florida wineries here. And so in the smaller bottles and cans, nothing that I had was available in your store and vice versa. And there was some fun stuff in both stores. Unfortunately, we couldn't do that. There was even a wine I saw that was made with hops in it that I thought would have been perfect for the old dorks on corks, Mm -hmm. but that was not meant to be. So we have full bottles from Island Grove from Hawthorne, Florida. Now Hawthorne's a little bit southeast of Gainesville. It's actually out near Cross Creek, which is interesting because that's a well-known area because of the writer. Marjorie Kinnon Rawlings, I think. That is correct. She had two really well-known novels, one Cross Creek named after that area and the other one called The Yearling. There's actually a restaurant there named after The Yearling. This is a little bit southeast of that. 
And it looks like a great place to go. This was not the one we had picked out to visit, but I think we have a Hawthorne connection though, which is why we ended up settling on the Hawthorne Winery, right? We do. My boss, who is a regular listener of the podcast, hi Sandra, if you're listening, lives in Hawthorne on a farm with her family. And so when I said that we were doing this episode with wine and we were trying to find a winery around this area, she said, oh, well, there's Island Grove right near me. So Sandra, this is your local winery. And we were able to find it in Total Wine, even in South Florida. So that's a pretty good sign for uh, their distribution, I would say. Yeah. And we have they have uh, various collections listed on the website. We have something from the Florida collection. We have a sangria. And we also had something from their blue collection, I think it was called. And that is um, a collection of blueberry wines. And we'll be doing the blueberry Moscato, which is the first one I think we opened up. We also had another story from your boss that uh, might be worth sharing <laughs> because it's uh, we're recording this one day before... The National Anosmia Awareness Day on the national calendar of days. Is that correct? Yes. Anosmia! And she was kind enough to send us information about that. For some reason, I think my boss gets emails from nationaldaycalendar.com. I don't know why she does, but she has sent me a couple in the past. On National Pancake Day, we did a pancake breakfast for the department. So she like reads these days with some frequency. And this past week, she forwarded me an email from nationaldaycalendar.com that Monday, February 27th is National Anosmia Awareness Day. And (laughs) she sent it at like 10 p.m. at night. And she said, too late for a text. So I'm sending this by email. (laughs) (laughs) So I got into the office the next day and saw that very soon it is National Anosmia Awareness Day. So wherever you are on February 27th, Dad, I hope you'll take a moment to reflect on your awareness of anosmia. Well, I reflect on it every day, (laughs) obviously, but I know now that I no longer have to suffer in silence. Anosmia! And I will put a pin in February 27th and I will (laughs) not smell something that day in honor of National Anosmia Awareness Day. How brave of you. So I've opened up the first bottle, which is, as I mentioned before, Blueberry Moscato. This is a Moscato grape wine. It's blended with 100% blueberry wine. And it says to enjoy chilled. I chilled both bottles. The other one's a sangria. I chilled both of them. Not much other information on the bottle. It looks kind of a rosé color. It's a pink blush kind of color. What's the ABV? 6.8% alcohol by volume. Yeah, that's not high at all. No. That's much less than I would expect from a wine. Well, I'm glad because it is a large bottle and obviously I (laughs) have a cap for it because I'm not going to be draining this whole bottle, I hope. In one sitting, I should say. I'm going to cap it and have it later. And I'm hoping it's something mom's like. So let's see. You're drinking out of a chalice, for God's sake. What is that? I am, yeah. I actually have two. Oh, wow. When I was in high school, as you may remember, I did a program called the Cappies, where we would go to other local high schools and watch their theater productions, and then we would write reviews of them, which would sometimes be published in local newspapers or on the newspaper's websites, which was very cool. And one of the sort of norms of the program was when you were hosting cappies at your show, you plied them with food and gifts. So I cannot remember what show we got this from, but I want to say it was maybe... It looks kind of spam a lot. Yeah. (laughs) I think it might have been spam a lot. It would make the most sense. We weren't told that we could take these home, but I took both of them home anyway, and they they moved with me up to Gainesville. And (laughs) Let's review. You stole a cup that you're using to drink on the podcast. Indeed. It seems to be the season thing to do this year. 
stolen glass and plasticware. <laughs> I'm glad that you mentioned reviews because that'll be coming up shortly. But before we get into this album and why you ended up selecting it, let's get an initial impression of this wine. It's very sweet. Very sweet. But it is tasty. Yeah. It's really good and very easy to drink. There's not a lot of deep character to it, right? It's just a very fresh, clean tasting, sweet blueberry wine. I mean, you clearly taste the blueberries in it. And it's pretty easy to drink. And I think mom's going to enjoy this one. This seems like something that would be right in her wheelhouse. Yeah, I was going to say it's not too sweet either because mom toes that fine line where she likes a sweet beverage, but she doesn't like it too sweet. And I think this is going to be right in that wheelhouse because it's not too sweet. It's really good, actually. The blueberry's not super prominent, in my opinion. I think I would like just a touch more blueberry flavor because I think half the wine was blueberry-only wine, fermented blueberries, and then they blended that with Moscato. Yes, it is blended. That's right. It wasn't fermented altogether. It was two wines blended together. Right. Maybe they just need to up their percentage of blueberry wine in this blend. (laughs) Well, if you look at the blue series online, you'll realize there are options in the blueberry category. I could pull the website up, actually. It's called Blue Roots Collection. There are four or five of them on here. Sort of sweet blueberry, kind of dry blueberry, barrel-aged coastal blue, Mm. and blueberry Moscato are the four that are on there right now. And the the sort of sweet and the kind of dry appear to be 100% blueberry wine to me. Oh, wow. A lot of the wineries up in this central Florida area are blueberry wineries. There's at least one other that I know of, Keeling Curly, that does blueberry wine and other fruit wines. Is that the place down near Claremont? No, it's in Plant City. Oh, Plant City. That's right. That's a huge fruit capital in Florida. Mm-hmm. So I, that makes me wonder, do we have... And I don't know the answer to this. Do we have blueberries grown in Florida or do they import the blueberries from? Because it doesn't seem like a climate that would be really supportive of blueberries. I think there's something about cold that I'm thinking about for blueberry bushes. Don't know. There are Florida blueberries, I think. The big blueberries are Florida blueberries. I'm pretty sure. They're not as sweet as main blueberries, which are teeny tiny. Right. So maybe the cold has something to do with the sweetness of the berry. Well, New Jersey has a colder climate and makes a bigger blueberry than Maine, although it's a little more temperate than Maine, obviously. I'm just pulling up a thing on blueberries online just to see if they show me a map. (laughs) Because when we do it on Zoom, we have access to things. Growing regions, significant production of high bush blueberries occurs in British Columbia, Maryland, Western Oregon, Michigan, New Jersey, North Carolina, and Washington. The production of southern high bush varieties occurs in California as varieties originating from University of Florida, Connecticut, New Hampshire, North Carolina State University, and Maine have been introduced. Wow. Hamilton, New Jersey claims to be the blueberry capital of the world. That's near where I grew up. And Maine is known more for wild blueberries. So University of Florida has something to do with it. I didn't really say they were grown here, but it looks like um, they originated a variety. So I would assume there's some farms locally. That's pretty cool. Well, while I enjoy this fabulous blueberry wine, tell me why you picked, because this was not the original album we were going to do, The Mass Marauders. Correct. And you had some kind of startling discovery that you <laughs> said, hey, we have to do this album this year. Yeah. So why did you pick The Mass Marauders? So I had never heard of this album until about four weeks ago, maybe, when I listened to an episode of a podcast that I enjoy and listen to regularly called Ridiculous Crime. And it is a podcast about, they claim to be 99% murder-free and 100% ridiculous. <laughs> so it's true crime, but it's not the exploitative, murdery true crime that everyone thinks of. It's more about heists and capers and cons with a focus on 
ridiculousness, right? And they did an episode on the fake Fleetwood Mac touring band. I know nothing about that either. You you know nothing about this? No, no. It's not the focus of why I chose the Mass Marauders. So I didn't really pull any information on that beyond what I remember from the podcast. But essentially, Fleetwood Mac was in some turmoil. I think the personnel was fighting with each other and and they didn't want to go on tour. And so their tour manager or their record label was like, well, we'll just put together this fake group, build them as Fleetwood Mac. And they can tour instead. They can do the tour. They had all the venues booked. They had sold tickets and everything. And so the bulk of the episode was about that story. But at the beginning of the episode, they did a little interlude where they talked about the Masked Marauders, which is an album that started out as a prank review in Rolling Stone. So in 1969, October 1969, a guest review appeared in Rolling Stone of an album called The Mass Marauders by a band called The Mass Marauders. And the gimmick of the review was that it was a bootleg recording, essentially a leaked version of this album. And it was a supergroup consisting of John Lennon, Mick Jagger, Paul McCartney, and Bob Dylan, backed by George Harrison and an unnamed drummer. So this guy writes this review as though he's reviewing a real album by these six superstars. And people wanted to hear the album after the review. Well, in essence, it was in as a joke. They stuck it in the middle of the review section as a prank, but people believed it to the point where they were seeking out the album. So the person who wrote the guest post was a staff member of Rolling Stone, if I remember correctly. And I guess he and the powers that be at Rolling Stone realized that, hey, there's money to be made here if we actually produced this album so they produced an album called the mass marauders by the mass marauders and they released it and they staffed the band with impersonators of the key people who were supposedly on the album lennon jagger mccartney and dylan and they made this nine song album sort of nine songs we'll we'll discuss more in detail but they actually released a single a, a two-sided single with two of the songs from the album two of the original songs from the album as there are mostly covers on the album but a couple of original songs and it reached number 114 on the billboard charts that's right this joke album so i heard this story and i immediately messaged you and i said have you heard of this and you said well i vaguely remember this being a thing but i've never heard the album and i said okay this is our dorks on corks album this year it's a mission for dorks on corks it has to be because what an amazing story and what a really fun album to come out of that prank i mean and what's interesting is it wasn't april fool's day no (laughs) it was published in october of 1969 but it is the perfect april fool's day prank yes across the board a hundred percent well and as someone who likes a bit and likes to commit to a bit i mean this is sort of the ultimate committing to a bit right that's right (laughs) like you went and produced an entire album and it did well commercially And I'm sure money was made on this album, all thanks to just a silly little prank review in The Rolling Stone. Well, the reason there was money made on the album is because you didn't have to pay Paul McCartney, George Harrison, John Lennon, Mick Jagger, 
Bob Dylan. Right. You paid a band. It was a band from Berkeley, California called the Cleanliness and Godliness Skiffle Band that was actually hired to do do the album. And so I'm sure they made some money on it, but I think it sold 100,000 copies. So yeah, there was some money made. But to have it start as a joke and then run with the joke, I 100% agree with you. It's like very clever to go and actually produce an album on the fly in a hurry. It sounds like a bootleg, Mm -hmm. which we'll talk about when we get to it. It does. Yeah. And one of my complaints about it is going to be that maybe if you take a little more time, I know there was a rush, right? There's a time frame. You got this article that's generating interest. You got to get this thing out. And I feel like a little bit more thought, this would be a massive discovery. Yeah. The way this all played out. Yeah. The production value is pretty low. I don't mind that the production value is low. Because it's supposed to be like a bootleg release. Mm-hmm. I'll explain what I'm talking about, where some things that I would have done a little differently, maybe that to make you buy into you were really listening to these guys. Mm-hmm. That's where I think they could have done some things a little differently that would have made you really buy into the illusion. Because as we listen to it, you're going to hear that the performances of the impressions kind of wax and wane. Yeah. Sometimes they're solid. Sometimes you're like, I don't get it. Yeah. And then the other thing is the instrumentation. The Beatles characters are not really represented a lot vocally. Right. When they are, they sound sort of like the clowning around stuff. You know, like, you know my name, look up the number kind of nonsense. It's not really true Beatles music from the late 60s. -hmm. So you get it that it's supposed to be the Beatles, but none of the guitar. So their instrumentation would be the key. You're going to fake everybody out. So the guitar should sound more like the way the Beatles play guitar. If that had happened, this would have gone up a big notch in my mind Mm. because the guitars don't really make me think of the Beatles playing guitar. And that would have been a great fake out. You don't have to impersonate them vocally very well. You just have to make the instruments sound kind like put a little slide guitar in there like George Harrison would play and you totally buy into it. But as an exercise, as a prank, this is delightful. It's just, it's, it's so in my wheelhouse that <laughs> here's a fake article on a fake album and that people bought into it is just delicious to me. Yeah. So I do want to share the actual article if you will indulge me, because I think as we discussed the album, remember the album was produced based on this review. And here to share that article from Rolling Stone from October of 1969 is our friend Pete Coe. They began months ago. The rumors of an event that at first seemed hardly believable, but which in the end was accepted as all but inevitable. After all, with Grape Jam, Super Session, The Live Adventures of, Blind Faith, Joe Cocker's LP, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, Jam Together, and Fathers and Sons, it had to happen. Set for release late this month, The Masked Marauders, two records set may evoke an agonizing tip-of-the-tongue, lobe-of-the-ear recognition in some, or cries of, no, no, it can't be true, and others. But yes, yes it is. A treasured, oft-Xerox sheet of credits, which, for obvious contractual reasons, will not be reproduced on the album, and the unmistakable vocals make it clear that this is indeed what it appears to be. John Lennon, Mick Jagger, Paul McCartney, and Bob Dylan, backed by George Harrison and a drummer as yet unnamed, The Masked Marauders. Produced by Al Cooper, the album was recorded with impeccable secrecy in a small town near the site of the original Hudson Bay Colony in Canada. Cut in late April, only three days were required to complete the sessions, though mixing and editing involved months of serious consultations on both sides of the Atlantic. Word has it that the cover art was intended as a send-up of blind faith, but none of the principals were willing to comment on the situation. The LP opens with an 18-minute version of Season of the Witch, lead vocal by Dylan, on which he does a superb imitation of early Donovan. 
The cut is highlighted by an amazing jam between bass and piano, both played by Paul McCartney. Then the tone of the album is set by the next track with a little help from my friends, followed by a very brief In the Midnight Hour, which collapses and giggles and is the joke of the set. Side 2 begins with an extremely moving a cappella version of Masters of War sung by Mick and Paul. You'll truly wish after hearing this cut that you, quote, could stand over their graves until you're sure that they're dead. This is followed by an indescribable 12-minute John Lennon extravaganza, James Brown's Prisoner of Love, complete with a full 10-minute false ending. Quote, don't let me be a prisoner. Ooh, ah, ee, uh, please don't let me be a prisoner. Ack, ow, arg, ooh. The oldies craze is not slighted. Dylan shines on side three, displaying his new deep bass voice with Duke of Earl, Jagger with the Book of Love, and John, of course, with I'm the Japanese Sandman. Paul showcases his favorite song, Mammy, and while his performance is virtually indistinguishable from Eddie Fisher's version, it is still very powerful, evocative, and indeed stunning. And they say a white boy can't sing the blues. After the listener has recovered from this string of masterpieces, Side 4 opens with a special treat. Two songs written especially for this session. Dylan's Cow Pie, which is very reminiscent of Billy Ed Wheeler's The Interstate is Coming Through My Outhouse, and Mick Jagger's new instant classic, I Can't Get No Nookie. In line with the present trend towards simplicity, the album nears an end with a very simple duet on acoustic guitars, George and Bob, a marvelously sensitive, yearning, melancholy exploration of Kick Out the Jams. The final cut, a group vocal, is What Else, Oh Happy Day. This track will probably be released as a single. All the hassles of creating a special label, of rearranging schedules, chartering planes, and minimizing the inevitable ego conflicts were worth it. It could truly be said that this album is more than a way of life. It is life. Wow. Thanks, Pete, for that. That was fantastic. So, well, that is the backdrop, Abigail. We uh, obviously are going to dive into this track by track. We're going to realize, first of all, it's not a double album. Right. But they did do a good job of hitting some of the high points that are in here. So Duke of Earl and Book of Love and I'm the Japanese Sandman, which were mentioned in the article, are all on the album. Mm -hmm. Cow Pie is on the album. I Can't Get No Nookies on the album. And Season of the Witches on the album. Not an 18-minute version, but no. an over 10-minute version. <laughs> it's a long, long track. So they did a nice job of trying to line that up. But clearly, it didn't match up perfectly. So somebody going out to buy the album isn't going to get exactly what was described in the article. But the fact that there was even a <laughs> album out there. And the other thing, uh, just from the article... And I'll put these pictures up on the website. The album cover that they used on the fake article was a picture of Sharon Tate. I don't know the film. And they just used that as the image on the uh, cover. When they released the album, they didn't want to use that image of Sharon Tate because Sharon Tate was murdered by the Manson family oh. in Los Angeles. I don't know the timing, whether that happened after this was published or whether part of the use of the image on the cover in the article was to generate interest. I don't know. So they re-shot a similar image for the front cover. So the front cover on the actual vinyl album that was released is slightly different than the picture that was used in the uh, article. Hmm. And I did find a copy of the article that I will also share on the webpage. Before we get to the track by track, there are a couple of other things I want to point out about the album and then... 
a throwback to last year's Dorks on Corks episode. So in the original review that was published in Rolling Stone, they credited the record label as Deity. And when they released this album, Warner released it and they created a special subsidiary that they called Deity specifically for the release of this album so that it would match the record label that was in the original review. Right. We are reviewing the track list from the original record that was released. It's now available on CD as the Complete Deity Recordings, and that's how it appears on Spotify as well. And that is the original nine tracks of the album plus the two singles that were released. But it really is the Complete Deity Recordings because nothing else has ever been recorded on the Deity (laughs) label because it was created specifically for the release of this album. (laughs) That's why they did that, I believe, when they did it on the CD. And by the way, the two singles, the only difference is they were mono releases. They're essentially the same song, but it is a mono version. The second thing I wanted to bring up was this week I got to watch Weird, the Al Yankovic story which is something we referenced on episode one of Dorks on Corks when we reviewed in 3D, the Weird Al Yankovic album in 3D. And I didn't realize that Weird the Al Yankovic story came about in a very similar fashion to the Mass Marauders. Are you familiar with this story? I don't know. Okay. Share and I will figure it out. So a fake trailer for a satirical biopic called Weird, the Al Yankovic story, was produced for the internet comedy enterprise Funny or Die in 2010. Oh, wow. And it was clear that it was a satire. It was a Funny or Die. It's clear that it's not a real trailer. But years later, in 2022, they ended up creating Weird, the Al Yankovic story based on the trailer. I'm not going to play for you the trailer, but we'll link it in the show notes because There are scenes in the actual film that were taken directly from the trailer. I mean, the the dialogue is exactly the same. So it's clear that they based the movie on this trailer. And it's so funny because it's almost like the Mass Marauders where they wrote the review before the album existed. In this case, they made the trailer before the movie existed, and they went back and retconned the movie to match the trailer. That's funny. Although the cast is obviously different. The cast was different. Yeah, the original video had, I don't remember his real name, Jesse Pinkman as Weird Al. Oh, wow. What a weird choice. Yeah, and the movie ended up with Daniel Radcliffe as Weird Al. But the cast of the movie is just insane. I mean, the number of people they got to just even have cameo roles. It's like everyone in Hollywood wanted to be involved in this movie. So anyway, I do recommend uh, it's on the Roku channel. It's the only way to watch it. So, (laughs) Um, and we'll link the original Funny or Die trailer in the show notes. I just thought that was such an outrageous story and how similar it is to Mass Marauders. That's crazy. Dorks on corks. We have a cannon now. We have a body of work. We do. (laughs) Kind of scary. We'll have a subculture of fans for dorks on corks, right? I hope so. All right. Unlike the album, which opened with the 18-minute version of Season of the Witch. This album does not. This album opens (laughs) up with the track supposedly sung by Mick Jagger, an original, by the way, for the album called I Can't Get No Nookie. Nookie, nookie, take one. One, take two, take two. One, two, Thank you. 
So for me, this is a great, strong opening for the album because this is my favorite song on the album. Oh, wow. This is the best that the Jagger Impressionist does on the entire album. He's the most consistent on this particular song. It plays very much like a Rolling Stones song. So the guitars, it's going back to something I'd mentioned earlier. I'd have been fooled more or I'd, I, the joke would have been better for me had they had guitars that sounded like the way the Beatles played guitar. This guitar stuff very easily could have been played by the Beatles. Not their typical style. This sounds more to me like Keith Richards than it does any of the Beatles. But all that being said, that plus the harmonica that sounds very much like Bob Dylan, right? And going back to, well, there's not a character of Bob Dylan singing on this, but I believe Bob Dylan's in the room when I hear that harmonica. This is the track that sells the concept to me the most on the entire album. Mm. And I'll tell you why that's probably true. This frequently gets confused as an outtake from an album called Jammin' with Edward, which was an album that was recorded in 1972 by Rolling Stones band members. It was Mick Jagger, Charlie Watts, and Bill Wyman, accompanied by Nicky Hopkins and Rye Cooter. It was recorded during the Let It Bleed sessions, and it was released on Rolling Stone Records in 1972. This is frequently cited as an outtake from that. Like, it sounds that much like a Rolling Stones-type song. So uh -huh. people bought into this band something completely different than it was because it's very musically accurate. So again, this is my favorite on the album, and I think they really nailed it with this one. Yeah, the harmonica is a staple throughout this album. We hear harmonica a lot, and I agree with you that that is a subtle touch that really sells the Dylan involvement in this album. This is not in my top three. It's a fine song. <laughs> I just don't care for it that much. It's not great thematically, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> Lyrics wise, but they were locked into this one because that was one of the titles that was listed right. in the review. <laughs> right. So they did go back and produce this one. Right. I recognize that I probably should have chosen an original song in my top three, but that's not what ended up happening. I don't know why that is. I agree with you that uh, the impressionism on this album kind of ebbs and flows, but I found the Bob Dylan impersonator to be the most consistent, and I think that's probably because Bob Dylan is the easiest impression to do. I mean, heck, I can do a Bob Dylan impression. Right, right, right. I mean, some of his own singing becomes a parody of himself. Yes. You can be almost anywhere and be in the ballpark of some era of Bob Dylan. Yes. And no spoilers, but my favorite and my least favorite song are both Dylan tracks and I think fall on opposite sides of that line of self-parody versus genuine impression. Ah, interesting. So yeah, this song is fine. I mean, this album will not be in my canon of albums that I listen to. It's a fun story. It's going to be hilarious to review. And truly, it was a genius move to pull this off. But the music itself, I'm not that drawn by. The instrumentation is great throughout. I think that's the best part of this album is the instrumentation. The vocals are... Hit or miss at best. Well, hit or miss, but also sparse. There's an instrumental song. That 10-minute season of The Witch is mostly instrumental. So where there are vocals, it's rare and they're hit or miss, as we said. Yeah, hit or miss. But then even the instrumentation because of the production quality, doesn't sound as good and as clean and as sharp as it should. So while I enjoy the concept of this album, picking favorites was difficult. <laughs> well, like I've got bootleg Beatles stuff, right? It's rough to listen to because the production, you know, originally some of the stuff kind of snuck out. It would be like terribly produced versions of tapes that somebody had 
snuck out of the stu- whatever it was, right? You get these bootleg things, and I used to buy them on vinyl. And the only reason you're playing them is because it's some bizarre thing that the Beatles did that you can't, you never heard it before, right? Remember, the Beatles' career was short and to the point, right? So I'm a teenager 10 years after they're done discovering them, and there's only 14 albums. So once you're done with that, there's no new material ever going to come out. So when you find a bootleg, you listen to it ad nauseum because it's something else by them. And now they've done these like 50th anniversary of the White Album and you go get demo tracks and they're fine to listen to and they're fun. But the only reason you would really listen to a lower quality production value song is because it actually is the Beatles. Here you have the worst of both worlds. Right. It's done as a bootleg and it's not the original artists. Right. So when I go to play an album, this is not one I'm going to, I'm with you. I'm not going to pull this out and dust it off and play it probably ever again in the future because of that. Right. If it was really these five guys, of course you would play this. (laughs) It would be like this magically weird thing that you snuck in on. But with it being kind of a practical joke, yeah, I probably wouldn't listen to it again. I don't mind the stuff. I think the reason you go with more instrumentation than you do with vocals is because you're hit or miss on the performances when you're trying to impersonate the guys. Right. (laughs) So if you do the music, if the music fills the bulk of it, you don't have to rely on that. So I'll go back to the thing I said, if the instrumentation matched better, that would make it a much more stellar album, right? Yeah. I actually believe George Harrison was playing slide guitar on one of these tracks. Whether I could hear George Harrison sing or not would not be relevant to me. So my complaint about the instrumentation is not that it's not good. It's that it's not a instrument match for the people you've told me are on the album. Mm -hmm. But in this one, it's about the best of the bunch. And there's some piano throughout where, yeah, you can almost buy into that McCartney playing the piano. But I don't hear a bass riff that makes me think of Paul McCartney on the whole album. I just don't. Right, right. So that's track one. That leads into track two, which is a cover version mentioned in the article, Duke of Earl. So a couple things here. First of all, I think it's great in a second slot because this is really the only track where I think the Beatles are in the room. Yes. So the reason I started with that Blue Moon riff that leads into the song is because that's where I hear the best impression of John Lennon on the whole album. And the high-pitched kind of falsetto would be McCartney kind of clowning around with. And this is the kind of thing I was talking about earlier where it sounds like when you watch the Get Back Now, the extended version of uh, Let It Be, this is kind of stuff that would happen in the studio. I mean, there's a scene where Peter Sellers walks in because they were huge fans of those kinds of comedies. And so Peter Sellers comes in the studio and they do a little jokey thing with Peter Sellers, for example. And so that sounds like something that they would have done clowning around in the studio before a song like that. 
The other thing is that Dylan impression, it's probably the best one on the album. That's not saying much, but that's probably the most recognizable Dylan impression you're going to hear on the whole album. So this song works for me because of that. I thought the slot was good. If you're trying to convince me that all these people are participating, it's a great one to stick in the number two slot because now I've heard everybody. I haven't heard Harrison sing. But he's not supposed to. In the original review. That's correct. He has no vocals if you read the original review. So now I've heard voices that make me think about Jagger, make me think about Dylan, make me think about Lennon and McCartney. So this is my third favorite song on the album as a result of that, because this to me fits the mold of what they were trying to accomplish with the album. Yeah, I like this one too. It's also my third favorite. We matched. Oh, I'm so excited. Yeah, we matched. <laughs> I thought it was possible we weren't going to match anything on this one just because of how strange it is. But <laughs> it is odd. It is odd. I love the clip you chose because it highlights everything you pointed out, all the reasons that I like this song. It does include a little bit of Blue Moon, which I think is fun. It really sells that they're just kind of jamming, right? And that this is an illegal recording from a jam sesh, essentially. And the part at the very beginning with the kind of electronic sped up little part, that is so beatle I mean, they put those kinds of effects on their songs in the later years, of course, all the time. <laughs> Right, right, right. It's the backwards chopped up. That's why I bought into the Beatles being involved. Yeah. And by the way, that's the only piece on the entire album when they said about the extensive post-production. Remember in the article, they said something like, it only took them three days to record it, but it took months and months and months. of Yeah. That piece of tape that you're referencing where it's like backwards and chopped up is the only thing on here that would have been done in post. <laughs> right. Months and months and months to create that little snippet. Right. But that, I mean, that is so beatle So that really sells it. And I agree with you. The Dylan impression is great on this song. And yeah, I really enjoyed it. And Duke of Earl is a classic, great song. I had never listened to the lyrics of, I mean, I knew the song, but I had never really paid attention to the lyrics before listening to, to this album. And I enjoyed that exploration of an older song. And so, yeah, I just genuinely enjoyed this one. Yeah, and it fit into that. They said one of the sides in particular that they had a string of three of these old school covers. Actually, there's the three of them are on here and Mammy didn't make it, mm -hmm. right? It was the McCartney one was listed as being Mammy, but each of the principal singers had a song. This was Dylan's and this was supposed to be his really new deep bass vocal, wasn't it? Wasn't that on this one? They said that, yeah. But the bass vocal didn't sound like Dylan. No, I imagine it was somebody else singing back up. And then I was trying to figure out, well, who would that be? And it didn't really sound like any of the other principal people, right? Right. That aside. Maybe it was the unnamed drummer. Could have been the unnamed drummer. Although I don't think Charlie Watts ever sang. It certainly didn't sound like Ringo. No, it did not. So that was the second track, Duke of Earl. Now, I, you know, I've popped this thing in. I'm two tracks. I'm like, hey, this is pretty fun. That takes us to the second original track on the album that was also referenced in the article. And that is Cow Pie.
I think this is fine. <laughs> I have a top three. I have a bottom two. So this would be one of the remaining four. I like it. It's an instrumental on purpose. If you're going to say two words, you can sound like Dylan. But the harmonica sells it for me. Yes. Of the songs on here, I think this, and I and I think when we get to it, Season of the Witch, there's enough instrumentation in here that I'm buying in that there's multiple guitar players. There's a little bit of sound in there. It makes you think maybe the Beatles are pulling that stuff together, especially the... Um, there's a down, 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 down in the section I played there that sounds like some riffs off Abbey Road. So this is probably the one that's got the best instrumentation to sell me that there are three recognizable guitarists in the room from the Beatles. And I'm listening to some of them play instruments on this. So I did like this. I just thought you're going to put nine tracks on the album. And when we actually assess this at the end, you're going to realize there's only seven songs. Yeah. And this is one of them. <laughs> and this is one of them, right? That's what I'm saying. And so um, <laughs> as much as I like it, I'd be more impressed with more vocal impressions. If you're trying to sell me on the thing. Completely agree. But this is the example of why they don't have strong vocal performances. So they're relying on the music to kind of sell the idea. And they do, I think, in this song. Yeah, I agree. I think this song is totally fine. It's pleasant to listen to. It's pretty. It's almost ruined by the cow pie. Yeah. <laughs> Either commit to more vocals or don't have the cow pie in there. It's like yeah. <laughs> you picked the worst possible option. Also, this was the A side of the single they released. The A side. <laughs> I can't get no nookie was the B side, which I probably would have flipped those if I had been in charge of Deity Records in 1969. So yeah, I pretty much agree with everything you said on this song. The harmonica makes a comeback, which is nice. But yeah, the fact that they chose this as a single. And I'm wondering if you hear more beatle guitars, or at least, you know, guitars similar to the playing style of the personnel supposed to be on the album. Right. It's because this was an original song and they could kind of write around that. They could kind of build that into the song as opposed to doing a cover and forcing a playing style into a song that already has a playing style associated with it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, I think they probably released the original songs because then they didn't have to pay any royalties to anybody. Makes more sense financially for them because that's not the songs I would have picked. I would have picked a couple of cover songs for that. Uh, or mix and match, right? Put one original, one cover song. But I'm saying I think maybe the reason why you hear more evidence of the people who are supposed to be on this album is because they wrote this song with that in mind. Yeah, but you get a little of that in the cover of Season of the Witch, too, because mm -hmm. they do an extended jam session where they weren't locked into what the original song was and they still got away with it a little bit. So, yeah, but I agree with you. So if I was going to put a single out, it would have been the first two songs front and back, because then I would have thought everybody was involved. The difference there is I would have to pay royalties to the writers of Duke of Earl. I don't have to do that with Cal Pie. So is there enough in here to make somebody who buys the single believe that you're listening to all five of those artists? There probably is. If you put this in, I can't get no nookie back to back. You probably do buy it into that but this is still a weird to be on the a side Cow pie. this is very b side to me agreed so anyway i'm three songs in and i'm on the ride here i'm having a good time and then the wheels fall off the bus <laughs> with track number four i'm the japanese sandman sherman set the wayback machine for 1955 and who are you i'm the japanese sandman you look like a japanese sandman 
Ah, here goes. I'm horribly uncomfortable. Uh, well, <laughs> aside from the racism. <laughs> All right, well, let's take the racism. This is the one that listed in the uh, in the article as being John Lennon. This is his song. I'm the Japanese Sandman. Yeah. In 1969, he's married to a Japanese woman. I don't think he's going to say some of the things that he supposedly said at the beginning of that song. Sure. So, yes, it's of its day, but it's still not good. And by the way, they list this as being a cover version of a song called I'm the Japanese Sandman. There is a song called I'm the Japanese Sandman. Uh-huh. And it sounds nothing like this. Oh, really? Oh, nothing like this. So I pulled a whole article about Japanese Sandman. It's a song from 1920 composed by Richard A. Whiting with lyrics from Raymond B. Egan. The song was first popularized in vaudeville by Nora Bays and then sold millions of copies as the B-side for Paul Whiteman's song, Whispering. Just look up the Japanese Sandman. Okay, so Spotify has a version by Paul Whiteman and one by the cellos. Paul Whiteman's the one I just mentioned that was on the B-side for a song called Whispering. So play a little bit of that so you can hear the difference. There are lyrics to this, by the way. This is an instrumental version. Well, let me play the version by the cellos because that one is called Rang Tang Ding Dong, parentheses, I am the Japanese Sandman. So it might be closer. That might be the song that we're talking about that these guys did, but it's not this other song. This song has lyrics and maybe we have to find the Nora Bayes one. But try this one. Try this song. I am the Japanese Sandman. You love me like a Japanese Sandman. Oh, he goes. The rain changing, the rain changing, the rain changing, the rain So that basically is what they did. They did that version. Who was that? Did you said did that one? That was the cellos. What's the year? Does it say? Okay. So the original Rang Tang Ding Dong, I'm the Japanese Sandman by the cellos was from 1957. So this is the song they recorded, not the Japanese Sandman that's listed in the article. Correct. Yep. Okay. So it was written by Alvin Williams, and that's who's credited as the writer on Mass Marauders album. So the Japanese Sandman that I was familiar with when they said this was because in the article it says, oh, it's based on this thing by these guys. Well, it's not because I knew this song. I was in a um, Glendale. There was a jazz bar. 
that I used to go to all the time. And my buddy Rich Knight was visiting and we went in one night to have a beer and there was a guy playing. He was an Al Jolson impersonator and he was singing all these old songs and he sang, I'm the Japanese Sandman. Huh. The first one I played, we heard the instrumental of. So it has lyrics. So when I listened to this thing on the Mass Marauders album, I was like, that's not that song. And I was trying to sort it out and I absolutely couldn't sort it out. I wouldn't mind if you could find a version that has the lyrics to the original though. See if Nora Bay's version is there. All right, here's the Nora Bay's version. Won't you stretch imagination for a moment and come with me? Let us hasten to a nation lying over the western Behind the cherry blossoms is a sight that will please your eyes. There's a lady with a baby of Japan singing lullabies. Hear her as she Yeah, that's the song that I remembered. So this thing, when it popped on and it was this kind of racially charged Ugh. thing, I was like, well, that's not the song. I this is a song, the basic premise of the song we just played is that there's a Sandman from Japan who exchanges yesterdays for tomorrows. So by doing so, he takes every sorrow of the day and he brings you tomorrow to start life anew. So it's actually a very cool song and it's got a dreamy kind of foreign production to it, mm -hmm. but it's not a racially tinged song. But the other song comes on and I'm like, really? Yeah. And then I couldn't find that there was something that that was based on. Now I find that there was an actual song that was, I mean, they basically lifted the actual song. So anyway, this is not my least favorite because I have an obvious pick for least favorite. Well, because the last track's not a song, so. Oh. I know, I cheated. I went that route. But anyway, this, of the actual songs on the album, clearly my least favorite. Yeah. And the singer doesn't sound like John Lennon at all. And it doesn't sound like John Lennon, right? Like, it, it was like he wasn't even trying. It doesn't sound like any of the people who are supposedly on the album. No. I know this was one of the songs that was listed. You had a double album of titles to work with. You didn't need to include this on here. So this might actually be, for the first time in my podcasting career, a skip for me. Oh. <laughs> I really dislike this one. I dislike it a lot. Should we um, rate our wine before we move no, on? No, we have to do one more and then we'll flip the album. Ah, flip the album. All right, that's fine. So the last track on side A is The Book of Love.
the meaning of romance In chapter four you break up But she give you just one more chance So I actually put a second clip If you'll just play the other yeah. clip as well uh, And then we'll talk about it So that's on the outro, heading out of the album, going to flip it soon. And that was obviously just a very simple Norwegian wood played on piano. So again, talking about instrumentation that makes you think the Beatles are involved, that would be an example of something that would do that. Again, this is another song that's got the most goofiness to it that would make you think of that Beatles goofing around in the studio. A little bit of the thing at the beginning sounded like John before the mouth harp was playing. But I have no earthly idea which of the characters is supposed to be singing this song. It's Mick Jagger. It's supposed to be Mick Jagger, according to the article. Sounds nothing like Mick Jagger. No. Certainly doesn't sound like Bob Dylan. About the closest it gets is Paul McCartney, but he's not listed in the album as being the singer of the song, right? So as much as I like this song, the vocal performance really took me out of it because I'm not buying into this being any of these top secret masked marauders being involved in singing this song. So this is just middle of the pack for me. It's fun, but it doesn't. The joke doesn't work on this one as much because of the vocal performance. I put this as my second favorite. I really enjoy this one. Oh, cool. I really like the kind of joking around elements. I think that's why it made it up to the top. And I really like the Norwegian wood motif at the end. The part that you chose that had Norwegian wood in it, just that outro with the irregular drumming, that felt beatle to me. It felt Ringo, right? The unnamed mystery drummer, right? It could be Ringo. Right. Irrespective of the fact that they also put in Norwegian wood. But I like conceptually that... Even if this review hadn't been released, I like the concept that they stuck that in there as a clue to who might have been on the album. And the fact that sticking those clues in is part of the whole Beatles lore and ethos to begin with. I thought that was a really smart nod. And on top of that, I obviously love when songs are referential of other songs as evidenced by my love of mashups and <laughs> stuff like that. So I really enjoyed this one and I just love the source material. So it was an easy pick for me. I think you picked this one for the same reason I picked Duke of Earl, which was kind of in a similar vein. I just thought the vocal performance on Duke of Earl made me buy into the joke more than it did in this one. But I think the music on this one really makes me buy into it yeah. as a package. And now we're going to have to flip the album, which is an interesting twist of fate. But before we do that, I have to get a bottle of wine. And before we do that, I have to rate this one. <laughs> so again, if you're a wine aficionado, these fruit wines may or may not be your bag, right? Right. If you're just looking for a nice, refreshing thing to drink in the state of Florida, this is fabulous. And I'm going to give it a four. I think I'm going to give it a 4.25. Wow. I really like this. Again, I like sweet wines. We are not wine experts. This is not our usual gig <laughs> for this dorks on corks. We're, we're barely beer experts. But yeah, I agree with you. This is a very Floridian wine. I could drink this chilled sitting outside. Um, at a tailgate, perhaps, or even during the throes of summer. You just have to approach it like it's a fermented fruit and not bring all your baggage of what you remember from whites and reds, what you everybody would say is, you know, technically the big wine market. If you just get your head out of that space and go, is it tasty? Yes. Is it refreshing? Yes. Could you drink it on a warm day in Florida? Yes. So that's a good one. That's again, the Blueberry Moscato from Island Grove Wine Company. I am going to run to the fridge. I'll go get the bottle of wine and you get ready to flip the album. Excellent. 
All right. I've got a bottle to open. Beautiful label on this one, by the way. Oh, it is. It's like a Day of the Dead sugar skull type of thing. It's very cool. Yeah, but made with fruit. Like the nose is strawberry and the mouth has got a sunshine in it. The top of the skull is an orange slice. There's blueberries for the eyes. It's very sharp. I wonder if this place is open for visitors. They have a tasting room. Yeah, it's down near a lake. I wonder if my boss might uh, want to go one day. <laughs> we should go listen to this episode live at the... Uh... Oh, that's funny. Oh, it's in a cobalt blue bottle. Oh, how pretty. Ooh. I didn't notice that until I took the cork out or the whatever it is, the plug. <laughs> Don't say plug. <laughs> that's a, it's like a uh, rubbery stopper because, you know, corks are a premium now. There's a cork shortage, right? Yeah, there's a cork shortage. They're running out of cork trees. Tell the people what, what we're drinking. <laughs> we're going to be drinking the Sunshine State Berry Sangria. Mm. which is described as a unique blend of fun and fruit. It's a blueberry wine with lemons, limes, oranges, strawberries, blueberries, blackberries, and other natural flavors. And those are all the fruits that are on the sugar skull. So I think, if I remember reading the bottle correctly, it's the blueberry wine and it was barrel aged with all the fruits inside. So it did say on the bottle that this is best served chilled with additional fruit. So I threw in some frozen mango and some frozen dragon fruit. I'm going with a natural taste because I'm going to rate it in its purest form. How professional of you. I take my dorks on corks roll very seriously. <laughs> oh, wow. This is very good. That is really good. I mean, sangria, this is what you think of, right? But no grapes, completely made up of other fruits. That's awesome. Right, right. Well, and also I, I think traditional sangria is wine and brandy, maybe. There's some liquor in there and then obviously fruit and you let it steep. So I've never seen a winery produce a bottled sangria. Like I've seen sangria in Total Wine, but it's like a mixed thing. I've never seen it straight from the source as a bottle of sangria. The only sangrias I've ever bought in the bottle... We used to get one that I liked a lot. It was a red over at Costco. Couldn't tell you the brand or anything like that. But what I remember of it is it was a sweeter wine and then you concocted it up with fruit and other stuff. I think when you're thinking of sangria as a recipe, you start with wine. You could use any old wine. Yeah. And then you add the stuff to it. I think what's nice about this is- It's easy. You could throw a handful of fruit here. You don't need to. And it is not as sweet as the last one. It's a little more robust of a flavor, I think. Yeah, it definitely has some berry notes in it. Yeah, it's not as intense as a red grape-based wine. Right. But it's more full, like it's moving in that direction, I think. Agree. I really like this. I think it's the citrus notes that move it that way, Abigail, right? Because they're a little more acidic, a little more tart. I think that's what's making it a little less sweet, right? Wow, that's a good one. That's really good. Okay, Island Grove, look at you go. Hawthorne, Florida, represent. All right, so, so while we're enjoying this, we have to flip the album. And here's the weird thing about flipping the album. I'm not going to really explain it right now, but track six is called Later.
So that wasn't a clip. That was the entire track. Yes. I think it's weird that it's on the other side of the album. It's in essence like in the Beatles song, Helter Skelter, where the song fades and then it comes back for like an epilogue. And this is very reminiscent of that. So again, it's very beatly, mm-hmm. you know, the way this is done. The drumming sounds like it could very easily be Ringo. But to me, it's bad placement. But they don't have a whole lot of options here because... Side two is a weird side. Side two is weird. (laughs) And this is the opening of side two. First of all, on side two, the total running time of the side is 111, 311, 1013, and 130. So it's 17 minutes total. And 10 of that, 10 and a half, really. Is season of the witch. (laughs) (laughs) So the sequencing... Yeah, I'm going to go meh with the sequencing here. It's a very short album, as we know. But anyway, this is just a bizarre way to open the side. I like that it's an epilogue of the other thing. I like the fade and come back thing. Yeah. But to get up and flip the album to get this as the opening track, weird, man. It's weird. And it's really part of the last song. So we really don't have a lot of tracks to work with here that are that we can judge. Yeah. So I can't really judge this because it's really, I'm judging it in my mind as part of the last song. So I think that's why five and six just didn't, like I couldn't put them in the top three because it's just such a weird break. You know, it plays fine on a CD because it just goes one to the other, but I can't imagine on vinyl what it was like to sit through that. So not necessarily a fan of the sequencing, although I like the track. I think the track is fun. Well, and I like that for the first, I believe, appearance on this album, we get the woman backup vocalists come in to this track and they appear a handful of other times in the rest of the album. So I do enjoy that they made their appearance here because I kind of like that they're on the album, it makes it feel like going back to the whole conceit of the album, all these megastars are in this recording studio. Of course, they're going to have groupies around them and like, you know, people who people who came out to the recording. Well, they had wives. It could be Yoko and Linda McCartney doing that. Yeah, well, yeah. Because on the Beatles tracks in the late recording sessions, Yoko sings on Bungalow Bill, for example, as a backup singer. I mean, it's totally like you're doing this goofy thing for three days in a studio and your spouses are there and they're yelling in the background and it totally works. Again, I don't have any complaints about that and the style of the album. I just think it's weird that you would break this up two parts of the same song and you would put it on two sides of the album and make me flip it. Yeah. That's what's weird. But how else would you do it? I don't really know. I mean, you could just make it one track. You could have made it one track, but then what do you, you have four on side one and four on side two, I guess. Well, or put Mammy on there, you know, like put another one from the review. (laughs) I'm not going to put Mammy on there. We've already had an issue. Or any of the other. We don't need to offend every ethnic group on the planet. Let's just go with just the one for today. Maybe you move track five to open side two, and then this comes up as a reprise, you know, as part of that same track. Just make it one track, like you're saying. Mm -hmm. But to break it up is just weird. But it's part of the fun of the weirdness of the album, I guess. Well, and the original review says side two begins with an extremely moving acapella version of Masters of War. They could have put that one in there. Well, this is side four. Oh, I guess technically it is. The the Book of Love is listed as being part of that stretch on side three with the oldies, right? Duke of Earl, Book of Love, Japanese Sandman, and Mammy. That's a, boy, I'll tell you, that's a heck of a side if you put the Japanese Sandman and Mammy on the same side. Oh, my God. God. It's an easily avoidable uh, side then. Yeah, but it's got Duke of Earl and Book of Love. So one of my faves or one of your faves. I mean, that's we're, two we're of all... my faves. <laughs> now on vinyl, you're just locked in. Well, thank God we don't listen on vinyl anymore. 
All right, that takes us to track seven, which is another original, and it's called More or Less Hudson's Bay Again. like this song a lot first of all it sounds like bob dylan would have written it i don't know about your abigail hummel school of speaking spartly about music i don't know if we do that on dorks on corks i don't know if it's allowed that's a great question i don't know i think we can do whatever we want right <laughs> I, do we license it from the other podcast i don't know how that works but remember this was supposed to be recorded up near hudson bay near hudson bay in right? canada and canada and so I like that it's a reference back. This track, I don't think, is listed in the review, but the reference to where they've recorded it. So this song basically is like they're stuck up there recording and like you you hear it and it's just like they're in a restaurant and they're eating and they're drinking and whatever. I do think it's a violation on Dorks on Corks that they referenced to having too much beer. I think that's a violation. I know. But other than that, I like this song. And there's definitely Dylan songs that sound very much like this. If you want to go the Abigail Hummel School of Speaking smartly about music route and uh, pay the licensing fee to the other podcast but anyway <laughs> well at least someone's paying the other podcast right yeah this one i don't know that the dylan impression musically it's out it reminds me of dylan i don't know that the impression is spot on on this one so that's why it didn't really boil up to one of my top three but i think it's a cool original song i put this as my least favorite song and this is going back to my original discussion this is the one i think falls on the wrong side of dylan parody i think the vocals on this one are absolutely painful to listen to i can't stand them it not only sounds like the dylan impersonators doing dylan but it sounds like everyone in the band is singing because it is a fuller vocal sound it sounds like multiple people are singing and they're all doing dylan and it is miserable to listen to i can't stand it i just can't it would be funny if john lennon was impersonating bob dylan as a backup vocalist but it's not the original people so it's <laughs> no it just it sounds so ugly to the ear <laughs> yeah it doesn't really sound like dylan it sounds like somebody trying to do dylan badly that's my point yes yes I think that's your point too yeah it doesn't sound good i love the reference to hudson's bay the lyrics are sweet it's a cool original song but i just can't stand the vocals on this one and so it's my least favorite wow so you put that below I'm the Japanese Sandman and track nine. I did. Yeah. Ooh, you must have really disliked it. Well, you know, I considered putting track nine in the top three, but. Did you really? Yeah. Much like you. <laughs> well, because no spoilers, but it does reveal the whole secret. 
So I thought that was really fun. Yeah. But much like you, I decided it's not a real song. It's not really eligible for judging. Yeah. Well, I made it my least favorite overall. Yeah. But I made my least favorite actual song, I'm the Japanese Sandman. And honestly, in retrospect, I would prefer to listen to track nine than I'm the Japanese Sandman. So maybe I was really between a rock and a hard place between those two things. I just thought, well, this isn't really a song, so how can I judge it? But anyway, that's more or less Hudson's Bay again. I thought musically, like you said, it was spot on. I thought the singing was not good. (laughs) And so I feel like as we've progressively gone through the album, the joke is running out of gas. Yes. Isn't that the sense you get? Like side one is pretty strong across the board. The Japanese Sandman excluding. If you'd have moved Season of the Witch up and had a five track EP that included all of side one except Japanese Sandman plus Season of the Witch and did it as a five song EP, you'd have had a real decent piece of material here. Agreed. That's my assessment. And remember, I'm combining five and six into one track. Mm-hmm. That would be killer. So let's resequence that for on Spotify. What are we going to call it? Oh, we'll call it the Truncated Marauders. (laughs) (laughs) The Unmasked Marauders. So anyway, we've been intimating at this for a long time now. We're up to track number eight, and that is the not 18-minute version of Season of the Witch. How did you ever pick a clip for this one? I'm excited. Let's figure out what I picked. When I look out my You're right. It's very tough to pick a clip for this one. I wanted to focus on the Dylan vocal because mm-hmm. the point I wanted to make here is this sounds like a parody of a Dylan vocal, but it also sounds like Bob Dylan. <laughs> so it's the great example of why everybody can do a Dylan impression because this is the version of Dylan that everybody can do. But he actually sounded like this mm-hmm. for a stretch of his career. Mm-hmm. So I thought this was a good impression. Yes. I thought musically, this is a lot of fun. It's a 10 minute song. It's kind of structured with a long intro. We dive into the Dylan piece of the lyrics. Then there's a very extended middle piece. It's like a jam session. And then it comes back. There's Jagger sings elements of it toward the back half of this. So both of them get a turn at performing. The thing about it to me, it feels like a Doors song. Like if you listen to a long extended Doors thing, this would be what it would sound like. There's a lot of great guitar music on here that doesn't make me think the Beatles are playing it, but it didn't disappoint me in this one. I I enjoyed the sound of this song. I don't mind that it's 10 minutes. I like listening to that mid-range jam of just the guitars that sound like the Doors. This is my second favorite song on the album. I think this is a really cool song. This is my first favorite song. See? 
we sort of matched again. We did. Well, listen, we're working with basically six songs. <laughs> yeah, I agree with everything you've said. I love the source material. So I was set up to go in liking it. Agreed that Dylan sounds like Dylan. And I love that jam session. I mean, long songs I have mixed feelings about. I mean, I do like those Fish albums that you used to play. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. So here's the thing about that music in the middle. If you focus on it, it's interesting to listen to. Yeah. But you don't have to focus on it and it still functions as background music. So it doesn't distract you. Yes. If you don't want to be distracted, it won't. But if you want to zero in on it and kind of listen to it for all the elements, you can. That's a pretty powerful song. I really do like that song. And if I was going to sequence an EP... I would put this maybe in the four slot and end with Book of Love. I think I would go one, two, three, the way it is, do the cow pie instrumental, do this, and then do Book of Love. You might argue that maybe you move cow pie to the second slot and break up the Dylan thing a little bit. But those five songs, and by five, I'm talking about five and six combined on my mm -hmm. version of this. I've used six of the nine tracks as an EP. That's a better album. Agreed. And then it's easy to explain away, you know, they may have recorded all these things, but they only wanted to release these five songs. I mean, within the story of the prank, it works. Right. And you've selected the songs that have the best impressions. So it's a more convincing iteration of the prank. Right. Right. So I completely agree with you. That would have been a better move. Well, we should have played the whole 10 minutes because I'm not getting enough of this delicious sangria. That's why I said we should have rated the other one before. Yeah. Well, I didn't know this was going to be so good. So that takes us to track nine. And I don't think I played the entire track. I think I cut this. I debated it. It's about a minute 30. Okay. And I think I trimmed it out. And we are going to have to put an explicit warning on our episode, aren't we? Yes. Because I want you to hear what this guy says. <laughs> There are swear words in this track. If any children are listening. If you're offended by swear words that involve defecating, <laughs> cover your ears <laughs> for Saturday night at the Cow Palace. consumer <laughs> <laughs> so that is the instrumental of cow pie yes with the spoken word piece <laughs> over it yeah i like that it lets you know and other elements of the thing in the album let you know that there was a joke this for sure also yes. they reprinted the article inside the album i think as a separate piece of paper they put the whole article from the rolling stone in there oh fun and then there were some other references in the liner notes to let you know that it was a prank but all of that was accessible after you paid the five dollars and 86 cents right so i can see why this guy's a little angry but i also think that having the guy be angry in this track deflects what you're going to feel if you thought you were buying like to have this guy say that and voice maybe what you're feeling is a very clever way to 
de-escalate that. Yes. <laughs> you know what I mean? I agree. So I do think it's funny, but I had it in the bottom just because technically it wasn't a music track and I just took the easy road. But the real negative reaction I had was to, of the whole album was on I Am the Japanese Sandman. Yeah, I find this track delightful. I was smiling the whole time it was playing. I just think it's so cheeky and fun. And I love that after all that, they revealed the secret. Because what is a prank if no one knows you've played it, right? The funny part is the realization. So this is the whole thing come to fruition. Well, we talked about this. I'm going to go wait in the Wayback Machine to our episode on the Magical Mystery Tour. When I talked at great length about all the funny things we hid in our high school magazine to sneak it by the headmaster. Yes. And nobody knew it and nobody figured it out. And years later, we wrote a poem to try to explain it so that everybody would be also in on the joke. Because like you said, if you do this joke and nobody realizes it's a joke, it's not funny. Right. So this track does let everybody in on the gag, which I think is cute. Yes. And not only that, it lets you in on the gag of the article from the magazine, which was really the gag. Right. The album was like a rushed afterthought to that. This is letting everybody know that the article was a fake. Right. People didn't even realize that necessarily. So I do get a kick out of this. But as an individual track on a record, I had a tough time with it. That's fair. I mean, it reused music from an earlier song, so you can't even really judge it on the merits of the instrumental backing track. So I understand why you ranked this as your least favorite. As I said, I kind of excluded this one from judging, but it might have been in my top three just because of how enjoyable I find the completion of the whole joke in this song. Right. Or not in the song, in this track. This is the big reveal of the joke of both the magazine and the album, for sure. So I enjoyed doing this exercise. I didn't know anything about the album. I found the whole story incredibly interesting. It's something that's so in my wheelhouse. It's like something I would have done. I just said that about the magazine. It's like something I would have done, right? If I had the resources to do it. Yeah. And I have some technical quirks with the album, the things I might've done differently to make it seem more like it was those guys. But to rush it out four weeks after the article was out, have this much fun material on it, you know, there's going to be some hits and misses on it when you're moving that fast. That was my point about, wow, if you'd have just maybe released a single as a tease yeah, and spent an extra four weeks on the album and really made it solid, it might have been a classic album for all that went into it. Mm-hmm. Maybe if it was stronger musically or the impressions were stronger or whatever, maybe most of us would know the story. Maybe it would have become a legendary story. Right. As opposed to kind of a hidden afterthought. Yeah, I was completely surprised that this had happened and neither you or I really had any knowledge of it because like you said, this is so up our alley. Yeah. And for me to hear about it on a random crime podcast, like it, it's so funny to me. So I will link that episode in the show notes. And I actually tweeted about it a few weeks back when I first listened to the episode. I highly recommend Ridiculous Crime. It's a very fun podcast. One of my favorites that I listen to regularly and it releases twice a week. Wow. So there's a huge back catalog to listen to. Holy cow. I can't imagine that production schedule. I know it's outrageous. So, well, the other nice thing is that I think we probably educated dozens of listeners about the existence of this. <laughs> we can only hope article and <laughs> album. So, that takes us to the rating of the final wine entry of the day, which is the Sunshine State Berry Sangria, which I am still enjoying. This is a really good wine. I'll qualify that. It's a really good fruit wine. 
in that tradition. I'm a fan. It is not as sweet as the last one. I don't think that's a bad thing at all. It has a more robust and deeper flavor. Definitely getting the berry. Definitely get the light hints of citrus in there. Not at all dry, which is a problem I find with red wine and... Even sangria, which is generally sweeter, if the base is a dry red, you know, you do get a little bit of dryness and it's offset by the fruit and whatever else is mixed in. But this is, to me, a perfect wine. The color is robust, too, as you were saying. It's a much more intense red. Doesn't drink like a traditional, like a Merlot or a Cab, right? Because it doesn't have that kind of acidity to it. So it's a way easier red to drink. I am also a fan. I like this one better than the last one. Yes, I did too. I don't know if it's a quarter point higher. Mine's is. I'm going with a four and a quarter on this one. That we don't have to worry about because there's nowhere to rate these. Yeah, that's and, true. Uh, there's nowhere to rate. We're not held accountable. All right. Heck, I'll go 4.5 then. Ah, uh, I can't beat you today. It's terrible. It's <laughs> terrible. I drank half this bottle. Thank God for the 10 minute version of Season of the Witch. No, I'm t- I drank five ounces. I measured it out. <laughs> I did. One serving of fruit? One serving. And I put in, again, I put in a little frozen mango and frozen dragon fruit. And they've absorbed some of the sangria. So I'll have a nice little boozy fruit snack. So that's two servings of fruit. Well, again, I want to thank Pete Coe for his delightful performance of the article. We love you here at Dorks on Corks for the original theme music and all you've provided. And our brother podcast over there on Pops and Hops loves you as well. Thanks again for all your support over the years. And we don't have anything to announce for the next Dorks on Cork because... This only happens once a year, so... Maybe. Maybe it happens. Yeah, maybe. we. Yeah, you never know. Check my schedule next year. <laughs> but we do want to announce that our next regularly scheduled episode of our brother podcast, Pops on Hops, will be releasing on April 14th, and we will be reviewing the album Crash Kings by Crash Kings. There's a lot to take in there. I think we crashed more than the Kings that day, if I remember. We did. We did. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, if you need more Pops on Hops and Dorks on Corks content, you can find us on all social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube at Pops on Hops Pod, or you can email us at Pops on Hops Pod at gmail.com. Wherever you're listening to this, there should be a link in the show notes to leave us a voice message if that's something that interests you. Or you can visit our website, popsonhopspod.com. That's where you can find bonus photos, videos, and other materials related to each of our bi-weekly episodes. That is also where you can find our virtual jukebox where you can submit your favorite album for a chance to appear on the pod. And on behalf of Hops and Pops, we'll see you next time. Happy Happy April April Fool's Fool's Day! Day. (laughs) Dorks on Corks You're not feeling the Pops on Hops It's Dorks on Corks it's kind of like Pops on Hops, it's Dorks on Corks. Thanks, Pete. We love you here at Pops on Hops. I'm sorry. Well, we also love you at Pops on Hops, but that's not this. <laughs> but we do love you over there too. <laughs>